You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Twilight Fanboy Narison and Aaron Duncan Donut. Wow. I, I've never read Twilight. Zach, are, are you Team Edward or Team Team the other guy? I couldn't tell you. I don't know. <laughs> I just bring that up because it came it up help, in conversation. I read the books. I know I lived in Washington, but I don't think I've. Uh... Yeah, because he lives in Washington. I just assumed that everything looks dark and dreary. Like right now, dude. Been the worst. Been the worst June for weather, man. It's just been raining and cold and. Oh, I love it. Um, and yeah, I thought a little play on Dunkin' Donut. Have you ever gotten that before? So, it's so original. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard that before in my life. I thought about Actually, calling yeah. Aaron Aaron Dun- Donut Duncan, but I thought that might get lost. That that sounds a bit stupid to be honest with you. Yeah, okay, okay. I'm so sorry. But Duncan Donut sounds okay. Whatever. They do. Well, we've been in uh, biography mode for the past couple months on here. We read Dorian, interviewed Dorian. We interviewed Sabella. And now we are reading Sabella. Hope to interview him again once we've finished this book. It is scheduled here in a couple weeks but this is a good book in fact it's a great book sabella's an american conscience um it provides for noobs and experts alike i think a, a concise history of niebuhr and his thought in a narrative format and i think that's been the most beneficial part of reading this uh this time around is we finally have a digestible history of niebuhr kind of masterfully integrated with his major contribution. So I really love this book. I've always wanted a book like this, uh, just something that can kind of streamline everything. Um, So yeah, we highly recommend this book to anyone just getting into Niebuhr. Highly recommend this book to longtime experts on Niebuhr who are looking for kind of a helpful narrative touchstone or template to better arrange the life and times of Reinhold Niebuhr in your mind. But today we're sinking our teeth into chapter four. This is the penultimate chapter in the book, and we're uh, dealing with, in many ways, the penultimate decade of Niebuhr's public career. It's the 1950s, the decade uh, that represents the swiftest change in American culture um, in its long history. Um, This chapter is called Bumbling Nights and Nuclear Warheads. And just to give a brief description, because that's what uh, Sabella starts off doing, Um, He starts off talking about Vegas and uh, people throwing bomb viewing parties out in the desert. And I love this because Sabella kind of tries to characterize this time in American history as this really kind of sick uh, irony. You know, um, there's kind of a sickness about American culture, even though it's thriving. There's all these bad things that are cropping up because of its thriving. that are ironically attached to that thriving. Um, it's the beginning of U.S. global hegemony. Um, the Marshall Plan, NATO, our huge and powerful military. There's anxieties about the bomb. There's Red Scare, 
kids hiding under desks, right? Not a lot has changed about kids hiding, by the way. But uh, accompanying that anxiety was a rejuvenation of religiosity, church attendance skyrocketing. Also consumerism, there's an economic boom, there's pro, pro sports, Hollywood, game shows, and yet there's also Jim Crow. And this thing that, you know, Sabella brings up at the very beginning of these bomb viewing parties kind of captures the essence of the time in that it's kind of turning our fears and anxieties into entertainment and money. Um, and this is where Niebuhr steps in. So that's what's going on. But Sabella begins with an interesting question. And I want to ask this to you guys. What to do with Reinhold Niebuhr? What, where, what is he getting at in this section? Do you remember? Well, I think, I mean, it just speaks to the fact that Niebuhr kind of contradicts, kind of contradicts the general idea that you can track a person down to either this very patriotic American centric person or this person who criticizes power, right? This patriot who it's either people want it to be either you're this patriot who is seeking out the good of America at all times that you see America as this innocent, good figure in the world, or you see America or, or you're a critic of America, you're a communist. It sounds like you're kind of hearkening back to the, uh, the red scare McCarthyism type of thing. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, it's a question that a lot of people like that are confronted by Niebuhr even today are asking, like, what do we do with Niebuhr? Like, where do we put him? He makes me feel guilty about my, uh, he makes, he criticizes the things I hold most dear, but I also see him uh, as a patriotic American who is, you know, pivotal in establishing um, many of the policy or at influencing many of these critical foreign policies, as Sabella kind of brings out, like, um, you know, he's a critical part of Cold War policy um, in America. Yeah, and it's important to see kind of where America is now during McCarthyism during this period. We see each other, we, we see ourselves a lot in the, you know, within that um, binary between us and Russia. We are the God-fearing people in the United States. In Russia, they're the godless people. We are the free people here with expression and consumerism. Over in Russia, they're cogs in a machine, you know, and there's this paranoia about uh, becoming more like them. I, I don't know if you guys knew this, but here in Cincinnati, so our team, our baseball team is called the Reds, right? Cincinnati Reds. Well, during the 1950s, Cincinnati changed their name to the Cincinnati Red Legs, and they changed their color to blue. And they just had like red socks. How messed up is that? And it's all because of this fear of being associated kind of thing with communist Russia. You got a bunch of dudes running around wearing red, called the reds with a C on their hat, like they're communists. <laughs> you know? so, so it's like a really silly time where people are ridiculously paranoid. Yeah. But then you bring Reinhold Niebuhr into this, formerly, you know, clearly a socialist back in the heyday. Um, and yet he's working with the State Department now, mm -hmm. you know, and he's being investigated by the FBI. Well, and I think um, Sabella, he really sums it up well when he says, uh, Niebuhr both shaped and subverted American identity in such basic ways that any attempt to label him as either a formative or disruptive influence was futile. So it was like really hard because like he, he, he constantly possesses this. And, and I think that's one of the things that 
Sabella highlights, you know, more broadly in the chapter is that that's not something that a lot of people possess. It's a unique ability that he possesses where mm-hmm. there's some people who are trying to shape society. And then there's others who are trying to subvert society. And there's not a lot of people that are able to like kind of do both to such an, to such a degree that they're not just like categorized in either space. Yeah. Um, so there's massive amounts of suspicion about Niebuhr. Uh, Sabella mentions the FBI has a file that would amount to 600 pages long. They investigated him so much. There was, uh, didn't he say something like they were spotted at Union Theological uh, Seminary's library, uh, these FBI agents or these shadowy men in black uh, looking through um, the books and stuff like that by Niebuhr and things that he had published. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious. Yeah, it is pretty hilarious. Well, think. In addition to this as well, if we look at the, the film itself, part of the beginning of the film makes a note that some of the Bush administration people love Niebuhr. A lot of the Obama administration people love Niebuhr. Everybody loves a bit of Niebuhr. But mm-hmm. in the 1950s in particular, he's changing his particular focus with irony of American history. And then you get to the part where from this point, he's sort of seen as the establishment theologian. Mm-hmm. But then when we get to later the part of the book where he's contrasted to Billy Graham, um, Graham is seen as, according to Sabella, as the establishment, establishment theologian with his close ties to Nixon, and Niebuhr's very critical. So in, in many, for many reasons, he's seen as distancing himself from the earlier radical causes that he was a part of on the ground which is why a lot of those in the black community felt like he had abandoned them. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's being seen as this person who's just cozying up to the state department while he's also critiquing the state department and the government. Yeah. So he's, he's seen as being very countercultural, even as he's in the state department. Yeah. Yeah. He's seen as this very, very in step out of step person. But I think it's, it's a, a unique paradox in himself. It's really a unique talent to have because he's he he obviously doesn't push people to the point where he's no longer has a voice or influence, but yet he pushes people to the point where they still are like, and maybe that some of that has to do with you know being in the position he already occupied. Perhaps he occupied a certain position of power that other people didn't occupy, mm-hmm. um, and that allowed him. Maybe he had more influence and power than we realize. Um, but at the same time, you know there were very powerful people that McCarthyism hit pretty hard that lost quite a bit, and uh, this goes into the, even the religious dimension a little bit. Sabella makes a note here that Niebuhr was a man of the cloth who counted atheists among his most vocal admirers and friends. So even on the theological grounds, he doesn't fit this pretty picture of Billy Graham. Like he's, he's admired by atheists. He's critical of, you know, Bible thumpers. He's able to maintain the space, whether it's in politics or religion, that you can't quite capture him and place him in an ideological sect when all of culture is pushing them in that direction you are either with us or against us type of language and it makes you wonder where Niebuhr might fall in today's most polarizing time well let's not fail to mention either that Niebuhr is also out of step with the general view of American prosperity power and innocence right yes that that, well, and we're going to get more into that. Sabella really brings on the point, but for many people in America, their wealth and their power is a sign of their God's providence for favor. And he's saying to them that the communists are just a degree of a difference to you. They're not a different kind, which is a significant point that I'm really looking forward to getting into. Yeah, yeah. That's, gonna, that's 
very interesting section. Um, it's important to locate Niebuhr within this term of irony first, because mm-hmm. the irony isn't just uh, what Niebuhr is seeing, but he's living this irony of being, and, and really nothing has changed. And Aaron mentioned that he's kind of dropped more of his radical uh, politics and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, but he's still, as Dorian brought up at the very beginning of his section that we read on Niebuhr, he's a man cast between worlds still. And I want to read this little section that, that Sabella brings up, just a couple sentences here. It is little wonder that Niebuhr gravitated toward the concept of irony as he wrote one of his most influential books. Not only was it apt for describing the American situation, it also helped make sense of his own life as someone who was both consulting for the State Department and being investigated by the FBI. Love it. So let's get into irony of American history. Mm. Well, let's just, can we say a note real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Tradition. So Niebuhr isn't just coming out of a vacuum with this concept of irony. He doesn't see just irony as an abstract thing. He's taking this from somewhere. Where do you guys think he's getting this from? The concept of irony? Yeah. That's a great question. I don't know. Well, I think it's in some ways a graduated form of his own thinking in reference to hypocrisy and what we discussed a few weeks ago with Henry Ford um, and kind of uh, his sincerity, but ultimately his uh, naivety. Mm-hmm. Um, so where whereas Niebuhr was more quick to point out somebody's stupidity or naivete or their hypocrisy in the olden days in the good old glory days before World War II, now he's seeing nations interact on a world stage and throughout history and embodying this irony about their greatest achievements, also kind of creating their greatest forms of downfall. Yes. Um, so the, what what would you guys say? What is we, we visited this a little bit when we talked about social gospelers and Henry Ford, but what is the difference in this way of speaking? Um, speaking about irony rather than stupidity, rather than naivety. I mean, it's what Niebuhr does best. And I think that's that he clarifies reality. Yes. Um, oftentimes, <clears throat> like, like he says, like irony is a really good way of bringing, making people humble. And I think that's one of the things I really, I mean, one of the things I love about Niebuhr and one of the things that I've most drawn from him is he has real vision for irony. He can see it really well, or at least he developed a skill to do that. And it's a very humbling when somebody can see the incongruities in your life. Oh yeah. And they can see how they kind of ironically interplay. I mean, that's half of all good comedy is just good irony. And, Um, and, and more on that here in a second, because he's going to say, once you expose that irony, you can't unexpose it. You can't cover it back up. It's there, like and like an idiot. Yeah, you feel like an idiot. And the idea is, once you expose the irony, then we we can be drawn to repentance, um, or more, but, evil, or more evil. And we'll hit that but, here in a second. But the thing is, I think what's difference between stupidity and irony, and the sort of you know um, Niebuhr's sort of assessment of it is stupidity itself can be your own of your own choosing, right? Mm-hmm. But with irony, there is, there's a, there is an additional step until it becomes your choice, right? right? So as he says about Don Quixote, is that the sincerity of, of his ideals exposed the pretensions of feudal society. He believed what he said, 
and he believed in the project he was doing, right? Yeah. He was very sincere about who he was. And like many of Americans, they're very sincere, sincere people, farmers, industrial workers, people in the managerial classes, um, Ford, probably a very sincere guy. Billy Graham, probably a very sincere man. Yeah. But there's something deeper at work in their sort of ideology, you might say. That, that the sincerity is covering up. Exactly. Yeah. Sincerity, sincerity asks almost as a mask about the underlying insecurity that people have, right? I guess you could probably say. And we get this impression that kind of with with the understanding of irony, kind of the more you push toward greatness, the greater the ills that come about from it. Mm -hmm. um, and the more you can perhaps achieve greatness, but the more of that uh, vulnerable underbelly that gets exposed about who you are, that it's easy to blind yourself to so long as you're achieving things in this other area. Yeah. So let's talk, let's open that up a little bit more because the Don Quixote thing is pretty important for realizing this. And I, and I, and I just want to say like in the, in, in the introduction, Niebuhr brings out, he contrasts two terms. Sibella doesn't bring this up, but he contrasts tragedy and irony and shows the difference between the two. Tragedy is kind of like this uh, fateful, like you're bound to fail type of thing. Um, it's going back to the Greeks and the gods and a tragedy is kind of somebody who opposes the gods um, and the audience knows they're going to fail, kind of like Oedipus. They know you're going to fail. They know you're going to fulfill this prophecy. They, you know that they're going to become a slave ultimately to their fate, but they have no choice. That's tragedy. That's pathetic, Niebuhr would call. But irony is that we fail. Our failures are intimately attached to our successes. Mm -hmm. So I think with that kind of definition that the greater we are kind of the more exposes this we can maybe now open up the the whole don quixote aspect of it so aaron you were just talking about the don quixote thing uh how does he set up kind of the united states and russia within this metaphor of don quixote well so niebuhr just uses don quixote as a sort of um all-encompassing metaphor to describe the relationship between not the relationship between but the uh, the the status or, uh, or the self-conscious of Americans and, and, and Russians, right? So Don Quixote is this sort of bumbling figure. And I think from my understanding of the particular section on page uh, 91, is that he doesn't have that much resources. He isn't the most stammering knight. When you think of a knight, you probably think of someone in shining armor, but his horse isn't even that good. And he's battling windmills. And so it seems like his whole his whole project is doomed to fail or isn't even necessarily that grand, uh, you know, so. But what's forcing him to charge forward are these pretensions. So what exactly. are the pretend what, what are the sources of America's pretensions and what are the sources of the Soviet Union's pretensions? Well, so the source of America's pretensions that I, I, that Sibella gets into is this power innocence um and mm -hmm. some other stuff but and he even goes back further and locates it within puritanism yes city on a hill type of thing oh yeah with john winthrop the puritan minister yeah his his form his particular message for the first colony was that america was supposed to be a a, a, beak, a, a beacon on a hill right mm -hmm. and they were a moral example for a new world and for and that sort of self-confidence in our <laughs> mission our goal kind of guides our pretensions about who we are as a nation right i mean uh, sabella brings out this quote 
that Niebuhr says, and it's really good. It says, Grant to Niebuhr concedes, if all the knights of bourgeois culture, our castle, maybe America's castle, is the most imposing and our horse is the most impressive, our armor is the shiniest and the lady of our dreams is the most desirable, end quote. But this comeliness of appearance obscured the ridiculous, ridiculousness of our illusions, right? So we have all the best toys and best weapons, but there's something more at play underneath them all. So it's, it's kind of like, imagine Don Quixote, but imagine Don Quixote is actually really successful at defeating these yeah. foes, really successful at it. But he attributes his successes, not to his great horse and not to you know this or that or his armor, but he attributes his successes to his feudalistic pretensions. This outmoded, outdated way of viewing the world is what is propelling him to, to conquer his foes. Um, yeah. when, when really those are the things that are, are going to ultimately cause his own demise. Yeah. I mean, the difference between that and communism, Niebuhr sees, is this element of fury. That the fury as a further twist of consistency, Niebuhr says, to its illusions than something America has. We don't have that sort of fury. And they're imperial. Um, they have, we, we could list a lot of the ways that those pretensions that the USSR had, uh, equ uh, economic equality, a lot of these things that are powering it, its successes are oftentimes attributed to those things, you know, mm -hmm. um, but it's ultimately, you know, uh, what is propelling it toward doing a whole lot of evil. And it's easier for us to see it within the Soviets, but not so much ourselves. Yeah. We like to see ourselves as the, uh, the white knight, the true yeah. knight. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this, because I, you know, I, um, I had this question written down and it's, it's on, the, on page 92. And it's just after that quote I, I read a minute ago, um, or a second ago, it says, and, and Niebuhr further on says, our ideological weapons are frequently as irrelevant as were the spears of the knights when gunpowder challenged their reign. So Honey. if we're taking the analogy that Niebuhr is bringing up here, the metaphor, right? America has all the nice shiny toys and armor and weapons and bourgeois culture. What is the gunpowder that's challenging our reign? Is it is it Russia then? Or is it is it something different at this are you about like in current politics today are you talking about like no um, i mean in 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 this particular setting for neighbor okay, okay yeah in the 1950s is it because it then sabella does transition to talking about america versus communism so it makes me kind of think that this particular thing neighbor is referring to might be communism but i wonder if if the the gunpowder itself might be does something inward some sort of in inconsistency in America's sort of ideology. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because I, I didn't quite think about. I didn't, I didn't. I had that highlighted as well because I was. I was curious. I mean, I think it's a pretty fire statement because I, I think what he's saying is, like, in light of nuclear weapons, in light of the terrible weapons of war, um, they're kind of ideology is kind of irrelevant, right? When it comes to like, I think a great example would be kind of how what's kind of taken place with Ukraine and western nations i think that there was a lot of ideology around they thought in some ways that ideology would insulate and protect the western world and but in reality it actually in some ways weakened it and allowed for kind of what's taking place with russia and ukraine right now if that makes sense in light yeah. of the fact that you can have all the ideology you want but if 
Russia invades and takes your land. I mean, it, great example would be the fact that I, Ukraine got rid of their nuclear weapons, right? That was an ideological, everybody was like on board with that. It was a great idea. It, it, it was, it was like a good idea in a sense, but really not that good of an idea. It's crazy. It was, it was blind to the gunpowder of Putin. And, yeah. and I, I think the, um, just taking another look at this, I think the gunpowder just kind of represents history. What happens next? That our, out, our outmoded pretensions are going to be exposed eventually. It's not going to come down to our ideologies that are, that's going to save us ultimately. Yeah. Um, but it's, and the, the kind of illusions about ourselves, that stuff, that stuff is not going to save us. Yeah. Um, that we have, we have to wake up to the fact that we are, we have a feudal outlook of the world in a world that is developing gunpowder. Yeah. Um, and so There's we're kind of just waiting for our fate here with this old way of viewing ourselves as kind of city on the hill type of thing when we have to wake up and, and get more relevant with the times, Christian realism. I mean, that's, that's what the argument is here. Cool. I mean, it could be viewed as the old Cold War narrative, though, that I'm, like, Russia will destroy America. And Russia is the coming apocalypse of some sort of entity. But rather, I think what Niebuhr is saying and what you're saying as the identifying as history or the, the march of history, things decay, things die, is that it just kind of shows the pretension of John Wilthrop's um, ideal. ideal. 100%. Yes. 100%. Yeah. So we have to be careful without bringing Niebuhr as a sort of um, apocalypticist about communism. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. This is him saying that your own pretensions, your own high estimation of your own culture and why you have the things you have. Uh, if you if we stay with this God on a hill or the city on a hill, God's nation uh, type of ideology that's not going to prepare us for what comes next you yeah. know in the nuclear age we need a new way of understanding it we need a realism that isn't bolstered by these ideals of, of a feudal age but by current time like what how do we adapt to this new age yeah so and we get this uh sabella brings this out again says that i i gotta share this quote irony and irony is the central way that we get into this Christian realist understanding of history and ourselves. He says the irony dissolves once we become aware of it. Once we become aware of irony, we see how these myths that we have about ourselves come apart and we can see ourselves bare in all realism for what we actually are. Um, so he says irony dissolves once we become aware of it or rather irony transforms into either repentance or evil. What are you guys' thoughts on this line? It's fire. It's fire. <laughs> Heavenly fire. Fire emoji, fire emoji. Yeah, fire emoji, dude. No, I think it's it's awesome. I think it's, I, like I said, I think it's one of the, it's a really simple thing, but I think that irony, uh, understanding irony and seeing irony is very difficult. Um, it, it's very, um, at least for me, I don't know, maybe not for you guys. But so that's one of the things that obviously draws me to Niebuhr is that he's very good at like identifying it. And I feel like I get better at identifying it myself while I'm reading his work. It's one of the things that he, I think that he gives me the ability, to, uh, the greater and greater ability to do is to look around me and think, oh, it's kind of weird that we're doing this, but we're also doing this at the same time. Um, and I start to see kind of how we, you know, 
we claim to be in, uh, you know, like for instance, like at, at church, you could just use one little example. We're, we're, you know, we're a church and we say, you know, we're, we're of a heavenly kingdom. We are a people of a heavenly kingdom, but yet we like have this American flag in our sanctuary because like, that's like also critical, critical to our identity. And there's this kind of tremendous irony of saying like, Hey, we're, we're a set apart nation that we're a part, we're a set apart nation, but at the same time, we pledge our full allegiance to this country. And it's like this weird, ironic situation. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just those things start to really pop out to me when I read Niebuhr. So well, let, let's, um, let's bring this into like a modern day example. Yeah. The irony of Trump and Trumpers. We have this working class, salt of the earth type people head over heels for this, you know, billionaire mogul. Yeah. And well, this, it, this irony is important because he's clearly playing them. Okay. We just got an example from the January 6th committee yesterday that he is, is exploiting the stop the steal uh, whole mentality, the big lie mentality to make money. $250 million they raised off of that went straight into his hotels and properties. Now we can, yep. now if we were to expose this irony to them, what's their, what's their response? Well, I mean, for some people, if you take Niebuhr's formula, let's say, it can either lead to a moment of clarity. Yes, and repentance. repentance. But for a lot of people, to step on someone's toes, your, your ideas are very important to you. And what you believe is almost as tribal as where you come from as well. Mm-hmm. Because what you believe is normally who you are associated with. So it's a very hard thing to get to repentance, right? So if, if, if we expose them, it could either lead to the opposite effect of repentance, and that is resistance. Evil. Right? Well, he says exactly. evil, right? It's complete evil, yeah. The, the most chilling right. thing about this, it, what Niebuhr is saying here, is how applicable this is. If you bring these things out to them, they just dig their heels in even more, right? Uh, it, they, they aren't going to turn and repent. They're, they're going to find some way to justify it and therefore be blind to it and therefore be detached from realism. See, I, I, don't, I don't know that I agree with that because I think that one of the things I see in what Niebuhr does that makes irony much more powerful than just straight up criticism because you could just be like, wow, you're being an idiot. Or uh, I think that irony has an element of empathy. It's to understand the situation. It's to understand the other person and to understand both sides. And so it's actually, there's, a, there's, an, there's almost an invitation right? From the person who's exposing irony, there's from the person who's, it's, I think Niebuhr in some ways is really empathetic because he's very understanding of both sides. I'm not saying that that both sides are equally equally good, but I agree. But Zach, be honest, if you bring this irony up to a Trumper, somebody who goes to the rallies and say, have you noticed that this guy's making a lot of money off of you? And have you noticed this disparity between kind of the grifter and these salt of the earth working class people who know the the meaning of their work and 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 have a a strong understanding of the value of a dollar? Do you do you think that that this is a little bit ironic? What what's their response to that? Do you think? So I think that I've I've found not that I found a, a thousand percent success, but I think I found more success in talking about this situation when I frame it in terms of the irony 
as opposed to just being like, Hey, this guy's an idiot. Don't, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you guys selling your soul to this guy? Um, totally agree. Like what, what is it about this situation? Like, isn't it ironic that you have this person who is clearly very overtly immoral and you know, I'm obviously going to frame it differently than this, but yet he says he's a giant advocate for this group of people who is trying to advocate a certain type of morality. I'm, I'm obviously generalizing what I'm saying, but it, to highlight the, the irony of the situation is it's just kind of like a Trojan horse sometimes for people, because I think it's almost like they just like get slapped in the face by it, like un, un, unbeknownst, you know, like they don't, they don't expect right. it. They're just like, Oh shoot. Like that is a, Kind of, I, I'm the response not, I often get is a what about ism. So ex- the what about ism exactly that, that is that is the, I am not okay. <laughs> okay, listen, okay. I am not saying I'm not doubting whatsoever the power of irony. Niebuhr, I mean, that's why this is such a powerful book, is the idea of be able to being able to empathize and showing kind of a humorous thing about yourself. Oh yeah, I guess I do do that. And that has a very powerful way of waking people up. But the question now is when does that iron, when that irony does not work, when they can take this in and they know full well that Trump is not a moral person, they know that. Then what, where does that leave you? If the only two options are repentance or now you're evil, because I see a lot of people who I will try to bring out that irony about it. They're not, they're not listening to that, even though that's the best way to take. Niebuhr's brilliant for taking this. And what, 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 raise, what raises alarms for me, what's most chilling for me is the fact that irony doesn't work on so many people now. Zach, you're using this language of when someone takes in irony. Now, we're, we're talking about you know, people who are highly conspiratorial here, right? And let's say- Let me take that back. The, well, let me just let me just finish this point. Right. So, with, with with this part here, with with the implications of Niebuhr's thought here, who does irony also affect? Well, it's, it's us as well. But we have we are people who have accepted the pretensions of things that we've believed, and we've moved on from those things. We see the humor in that. But for these people, and many others, maybe us in certain areas of our lives, even when we're presented with irony, we don't accept it or acknowledge it we're we're not cognizant to those things so it's not that we take it in at that point we're presented with things but we're just you yeah, know so, oh we still have the, the um, scales yeah. over our eyes on us right what we are saying we're all in agreement here i think on this on the love thy neighbor podcast irony bringing out irony is a very effective way of getting people to understand themselves. It's kind of like going back to Don Quixote, putting a mirror right in front of him, right? I mean, that's what kind of dispels the illusions is the the army of mirrors. Um, Being able to see yourself through a God lens almost of, and that's what Niebuhr's kind of getting at, God's laughter, the divine laughter section that we'll get to here in a little bit, of being able to see yourself and all of your ironies, that should be able to pop with you and bring out in almost a humorous way uh the the bad things that you're a part of and that you're you're willing to admit or something like or you're you're not willing to admit that should expose those things but what aaron and i were just discussing is niebuhr says that when you bring up irony to people it goes in one of two directions it either leads to repentance or kind of a doubling down and a chosen ignorance and evil and i think that's what my question is so what my question is with 
kind of Trumpers, a lot of these people already understand the ironies. They understand, you know, their allegiance to this really rich dude who doesn't really care about them. And they'll even say, I don't care if he doesn't care about me. He, he does X, Y, and Z type of thing. They'll find all these justifications for it, but it's just a way of kind of turning their eye from the mirror and not allowing them to see their hypocrisies. It was a good example as well. And I think maybe I should retract what I said earlier that my, my, my sort of further <clears throat> explication of Niebuhr's, Niebuhr's analogy, but it is when there was a lot of talk in the media and so many sort of news interviews of supporters asking him, well, do you actually think Trump is a Christian? I mean, given all of his history, do you actually think he's a Christian? And people were giving the excuse that, you know, you know, no, he's definitely, you know, his relationship with Jesus is up to him and, you know, Jesus, or that, you know, we didn't, we did not elect him to be a moral leader. We elected him to be a leader, which God is used Nebuchadnezzar, you know? Yes, exactly. So they're trying to make excuses at this point. So I, I guess, I mean, I think this is what the formula we're applying is. Yeah, it is quite evil at that point to keep on going on with that. But my, I guess my question would be to you, Cliff and Zach, is that the, the sort of implication of the analogy is prior to be prior to being presented with irony, we're a bit ignorant of what's going on. Do you think that even when you are presented with irony, you can still remain in a state of ignorance afterwards, or is I it just evil? As a decision at that point. Well, I, I don't even know if you like this is the right way to talk about it. I think like I think one of the most disturbing things that people find about like I went to a, a school board meeting a little while ago and <clears throat> there was this all this talk about uh, masks and uh, vaccines. And, you know, people, this is a school board meeting about CRT and um, and oh, and masks, the mask mandate. Right. The school board was basically going to say, hey, we're not basically what we're going to do is we're, we're not going to listen to the state and we're, we're not going to make kids wear masks. And then the state was threatening to defund them. Yada, yada. So we got, there's a hundred people at this school board or more, I don't know, which is not very common in this community, huge amount of people. And the most disturbing part to me was not that people had different political opinions, but the, <clears throat> the, um, the lies that people were telling, despite understanding the irony of what they were saying. Like, like they were, I, I think there was an active disregard for those things. Like they had, they had seen that what they were saying, like, like saying that getting up there and saying uh, depression, my child is going into depression because they were having to wear a mask. It's like, man, there's a lot worse things that happened to you in high school than having to wear a mask. You know what I mean? And like, what you're saying is ironic because if you pair those two experiences, like the experience of like, you could go down a list of high school experiences that are much worse than having to wear a mask. And it's like, there's just this huge irony, you know, and people understand that, but I think it's not even a, an ignoring of it, but it's an actively just saying, I want what I want. Do you know what I mean? Well, to uh, put this in Niebuhr's terms here for a second, we're all driven right now by, so many of us are driven by ideology. And these are kind of, you know, it's kind of archaic. It's not, it, like, it, and you could do this with both sides, kind of the Christian nation or Christian nationalism type of stuff is driven by kind of that John Winthrop kind of mentality of the olden day city on a hill type of thing where a Christian nation, that type of thing. The left, we could kind of point to maybe enlightenment ideals, um, uh, idealisms and that type of a thing. Uh, but a lot of people are very driven by these things. And 
irony is supposed to be our key to being able to crack that open and be able to examine ourselves and our own hypocrisies and ways that we are actually doing harm uh, that we are blind to before because of the justifications of our ideology. So the irony is able to kind of crack that open a little bit. So when we go to these school meetings or something like this, these people are all operating on these idealisms of, you know, ages long past. Um, and it is, it is kind of calcified and hardened and turned into this uh, manichaeistic tribalism, this us versus them type of thing that's going on uh, on the right. And so you present an irony to them, they are going to reject it, you know, because that is their key to unlocking Christian realism. So when they then become hardened and set into this idealism, now they can accept any number of crazy views. So long as they apply to that idealism, they are no longer attached to reality, what irony is supposed to bring out. Um, and so you will constantly reject these ironies, you know, as they are being presented to you. And you are ultimately then rejecting a realistic understanding of what's going on on the ground. Well, I think that connects actually to what, you know, what Sabella goes on to talk about when he talks about with irony in American history with just our fixation on, with innocence. I mean, that was one of the most, you know, it, it's, it's like we need to maintain an innocent, like America needs to be innocent at all times and in all places. You know what I mean? And, and we, we must maintain the innocence of America. Yeah. It's like, well, chill out, man. Like, Let, let's get there uh, yeah. right now. Okay. So back to Niebuhr. So he's going to outline three, crowning achievements as a nation for the United States and always have kind of Don Quixote in the back of your mind. These three crowning achievements that Don Quixote pulled off, but then he shows the illusions or the pretensions and how we understand those achievements. So we're looking at the same achievements, but we're attributing them to these archaic, outmoded, feudal, you know, ideologies rather than a Christian realist type of perspective. And these three are American power, American innocence, and American prosperity. But with each one of these three achievements, we are going to support these things with certain mythologies about ourselves that give license to maybe doing harm within these, uh, these particular categories. So first of all, we have American power. Who wants to explain, who wants to break this irony down? Um, I guess, I mean, I'll go ahead and do the best I can. But um, American power isn't necessarily just related to its military force. It has three different components that, that Sabella brings out. It's, it is military power, it's economic, and it's our cultural measure, which he says... Um, you know, America was singular at this point in, in, in the context of the global global uh, situation. Um, and the nuclear bomb in our arsenal was a, almost a symbol of the, the dizzying heights of that power. Now, in the 1950s, America becomes almost forcefully engaged with a massive opponent on the other side of the world, Russia. And brings out this really very interesting quote of Niebuhr um, at the end of the section on power. He says, the irony of American power at the mid-century was that our nation is less potent to do what it wants at the hour of its greatest strength than it was in the days of its infancy. So we have all this power, 
And with power comes this possibility to transform the world into our image, to do countless measurable things that we would desire. But now there's this opposition in place that is preventing us from doing that. Which yeah, so up. so the nuclear bombs have, even though we have the most powerful military in the world now, we can't use it against our opponents, which is they might use it against us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they can't use it against us. And there's kind of a throw a, a throwaway line. Uh, Sabella just kind of, you know, talks about it briefly. I think there's just kind of one line in there, but this is a big point. I think that Niebuhr brings out that you, uh, United States hegemony begins in the 1950s, but it began largely because of historical events that also led to Soviet domination. So not only are these the only two powers left standing in the industrialized world that weren't leveled by World War II, okay, and that's important to keep in mind. I mean, a large degree of why America and, and Russia were so powerful was in not, no small measure because of simply they were the ones not touched by the World War II. I mean, uh, the Soviets obviously suffered mass casualties at Stalingrad, but largely these were two intact. They weren't leveled like Europe was in World War II. So they are the only two left powers standing. Uh, but both also have their military power largely because of the bomb. So it's not because, let's dispel this illusion we aren't powerful because God chose us, okay? It's not because we are a city on a hill that we have American power. It's because we are the last one standing, on, you know, separated by an ocean from the European theater of war. So our illusion, our pretension is that we are a nation chosen by God. And we'll hear that all the time, that we are God's chosen nation, or you know, we'll hear that type. Of, that has nothing to do with our greatness. Our greatness has a lot to do with a war, has a lot to do with history, sociology, okay. and just kind of the caprices of, of, of history. Yeah, he's just clarifying reality again. I mean, he's just making it clear, like, this is where power, it's, it's easy to say that you got somewhere because of, you know, here are the myths that you think are, cause you to arise, but the reality is <laughs> way simpler. Yeah, it's, it's a product of history and just, we were lucky. You know, we were lucky we weren't smashed between France and, and Germany. You know, I mean, that's a lot of what it came down to. Any more thoughts on American power and the irony of American power? I mean, I mean, maybe we could say something about this today, though. Do you think, I mean, c- considering Russia's advance in Ukraine, their, their particular military might isn't that impressive, is it? I mean... A, a nation like Ukraine is being able to beat Russian forces back with just guerrilla tactics and you know with supplies from NATO yeah US out. yeah yeah. Guns. Um, yeah exactly oh, so 150 billion dollars worth of you know military stuff but you know yeah, it's kind of like a US proxy war almost at this point oh yeah 100 um, you know I mean do are, we're not in the same scenario anymore with Soviet era power and versus US power now it's China that is mm-hmm. the sort of boogeyman in most of our you know worst day scenarios so what do you guys think you know neighbor's analysis would provide for today say an american pastor is supposed to give up and give a sermon about american hegemony what would what would what would neighbor advise him to say well i'll tell you one thing man one of the most interesting um conversations or or talking points i've ever heard biden go on this is fascinating seriously 
he's talking about we are going to face in the next 20 years with China um, coming up on the world stage. We're going to face a moment where we don't have democracy as a reason for our economic success. You know, in the past, we would point to, uh, you know, free markets, capitalism are what makes the United States the most powerful nation in the world uh, economically. But we're approaching a time where they have a quote unquote, you know, like a guided economy. It's a, it's a, it's an economy guided by technocrats basically in China and they will pass us in GDP. Um, we don't have, we won't, what's going to happen to us when we don't have that argument anymore, that kind of mythology that's supporting our, our brilliance or our, our dominance. Well, um, I mean, I, I still think that there will be some of that mythology because I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to live in China. You know what I mean? Like I, if, I think a lot of people had to choose between like people don't, people don't flee their country and flee to China, you know, for opportunities, you know what I mean? Like maybe that changed though. I mean, I don't know, but uh, I think that there's a certain ruthlessness or a certain, uh, I don't know, so, something, something that people are uh, uh, the boogeyman factor a little bit about like, I mean, have you, have you guys ever read the stories about the guys that, uh, <clears throat> It was a group that went from Africa to China, and then they they started working in China. And there's just really really rampant racism um, that they engage with all the time. Um, oh yeah, just using that as one example of just kind of like I'm not saying that it has anything to do with free car- free market capitalism versus the other type, but um, it is going to be hard for China to replicate the opportunities. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like but, the- but I think that what, what Biden was bringing out, this interesting dynamic, is that we've always attached being the more moral nation with also being the most economically prosperous. Um, uh-huh. That our human rights are a boon to our free markets. You know, <laughs> it's protecting human rights is actually what creates this economy where people can own their own property and things like this. Yeah. What happens when we're all of a sudden outpaced by a country that is much more powerful, perhaps, and much worse in their human rights. Um, we, we don't have kind of that mythology to, to point to our success anymore. It kind of shows a, a, a sort of monkey wrench in just like rationalism as well, right? There are s- certain dialogues where certain atheists will say that you know, it is more rational. We don't need some sort of moral law to give us reasons to treat people well. Mm-hmm. It's a rational thing to see someone in pain and therefore not want to harm them. Yeah. If we apply this to more government stuff, right, could it be considered more rational to have a free market or a free people, which would then lead to more prosperous, um, you know, consequences. But then you look at China's market, as you said, you have the technocrats and very oppressive regime and they're doing much better. So it seems that, and, and maybe I'm, you know, using the term poorly, remember you can comment on a cliff to mm-hmm. hear what you have to say about this. Well, I no, that's brilliant. And it reminds me of the second part of what Biden said, when he said that we can see this push and pull going on in our own country, mm-hmm. where authoritarianism is all of a sudden a viable option for economic success. And so he, 
so Biden was kind of thinking out loud about the, the possible situation where people will be choosing the gas prices over the democracy, you know, like what we're seeing with Jan, uh, January 6th type of stuff that, you know, the, the kind of the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing coming out of congressmen and women is that all oh, who cares about how much Trump was involved on January 6th? Look, look at your pocketbook, you know. And so I, I see this fundamental problem kind of coming up over the horizon where we can no longer lean on democracy as being a central component of success and progress. So th- think of it this way. I, so I, I saw a tweet the other day, uh, somebody saying that our enlightenment um, dreams are being destroyed now by uh, the wrath of human nature. He said something like that. And I responded, I said, actually, I mean, the, the call is coming from within the house a little bit because the enlightenment principles of freedom and progress in the end are actually not as congruent as we had hoped. The fact is that progress is no longer dependent on freedom. And a lot of people are waking up to that. Because at one time they, they were conjoined. I mean, if you look at how Thomas Jefferson speaks, to make progress as a nation, we are to get more free. Exactly. Um, but you can just see it in the way that Democrats and Republicans bark at each other is, is kind of this Democrats want the progress uh, and the Republicans want the, want the freedom. And they do not go together that well anymore. You know, being, well, but, and, but their vision of freedom actually is very totalitarian. Go ahead. I think actually, I wonder a little bit about, um, you know, and we're obviously generalizing here, but it's very Niebuhrian to do. Um, I, I sort of wonder if one of the key powers that's overlooked with the United States versus like a China in this situation in terms of what actually solicits power, you know, if we're talking about like he's saying like, hey, what really solicits power is you have, we have nuclear bombs now. Um, but I also wonder if part of the United States is power that other totalitarian states lack doesn't have to do with the free car. Maybe it has to do with free. Well, actually, yeah, it does. It does have to do with free capital. Uh, sorry, free market Marcus. capitalism. Jeez, um, and that is that for whatever reason. And I don't know the. I mean, maybe it'd be a great sociological read. But we have the ability to cooperate with other countries in a way that is unparalleled. Like we are, we're able to cooperate with people who we don't even see eye to eye on really at all. Like Saudi Arabia, like to, very, very different you know, the ideas and goals and all this stuff, but we actually cooperate with them quite a bit. Yeah. And that's something that China, I think really struggles with, you know I mean? They don't, they don't really have a lot of, if they do, they have, they have like coercive cooperative relationships. So like in Africa, in, in South America, they're loaning out a ton of money so that they can then stiff arm these countries to basically do what they want. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I mean, a great example. Why, why now after all these years of hating the United States or not hating, but like whatever, uh, being an enemy of the United States, a subtle enemy. Why now is it just now that Russia and China are starting to cooperate, right? Like they were, they were like the bitterest, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't get along for like all these years. But at the same time though, it's like, really? After all, is it, like, why is it now in 2022, you guys are finally realizing you could probably stand up to the US a little bit if you just cooperate. You know what I mean? But at the same time, the United States can cooperate with any, like not with anybody, but with quite a bit, quite a few countries are able, we're able to cooperate with. And I think that gives us quite a bit of power that uh, totalitarian states, they don't quite have that ability. Um, I don't but, know. but with, with our power, there always does come kind of a moral expectation or like a baseline moral expectation. Even with Saudi Arabia, 
Gosh, I mean, we're um, right now we're hearing cries, you know, ever, ever since they killed that journalist. I mean, why like people are waking up like, why are we so tight with them? A lot of it has to do with geopolitics. But uh, I thought about this when you brought up that China will use kind of their economics as a way of kind of controlling. I mean, what's worse? I mean, that or the United States yeah, no, I'm, using, I'm using Saudi Arabia, who's controlling people. Yeah. Um, and even doing that deal with them isn't very good. But at least we have the ability to uh, to elect new leaders, you know, to change that policy into something maybe more moral, you know, or or have more expectations and demands upon Saudi Arabia if they're going to keep on doing business with us. We could just put it this way. If you had an option to get a, you know, $100 million loan from the United States government or a $100 million loan from the Chinese government. There's like, it's not like, it's almost intuitive. It's just like, yeah, I'd probably take the U.S. loan, right? It's got the same, it's got stipulations and things you got to do. And, you know, you got to play ball and all this other stuff. Not if China's like, well, we could, we could do that loan uh, in, a, in a much more generous way toward you because we have a whole bunch of people who we're going to throw in sweatshops and you're going to get cheaper labor out of it. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, deal. I just think that there's a reason that uh, it depends on who you are. I mean, yeah. I mean, Putin doesn't care. I mean, who he does business with? I mean, and in fact, he'll take that deal with China, even if he's exploiting labor. And even if, you know, these things are coming out of, I don't know, these concentration camps. I mean, it's uh, I, I'm just saying Biden has a point and it would be something that Niebuhr would probably be all over is that are we willing to to keep going with this project of freedom, even if it doesn't progress us as much as, as maybe China. There are things to believe in about, about our way of doing. Is that, yeah, yeah you, you, could, you could say that, uh, okay, China might pass the US in 20, 30 years or however long it takes, 50 years, uh, but can China pass the US and Europe and you know, all, all the countries that the United States has partnered with? Um, because of their free trade policies, uh, that's a bit tougher. So we're going to see probably when China, as China approaches and keeps on going, we're going to see this conflict over morality and progress and freedom and progress and these types of things uh, more spelled out. And I'm anxious to see that debate happen publicly. I'm sure that it's happening already. Okay, let, let's move on to innocence. So, uh, Zach, what do you think about this section? I love this section. I know I said that irony is one of my favorite uh, aspects of Niebuhr's writing, but this ability to identify our compulsion to remain innocent, um, like to, to be perceived as innocent, right? We want to be perceived as the victim or the one who is acting morally. Um, it, it's, it's constant. It's perpetual. It shows up in people all the time. Um, Sibella says something really great here, he, or he quotes Niebuhr. He says, uh, this is from 492 of, Amer uh, of Irony of American History. He says, thus, an innocent nation finally arrives at the ironic climax of its history. It finds itself the custodian of the ultimate weapon, which perfectly embodies and symbolizes the ambiguity of physical warfare. The shining city upon a hill ushered in the age of nuclear warfare. Mm. It's like holding together this idea that like, oh, we're innocent, you know, but at the same time, we've, it's so ironic because we were the ones that brought about this era of, you know, and on its face, somebody might look at this and 
on its face, somebody might look at this and be like, oh, that's hypocrisy, you know, the, this innocent nation that, you know, left Europe and and tried to create freedom and blah, 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 blah. Um, they're so innocent. They're ushering in the nuclear age. But what Niebuhr is pressing us to do is to look deeper. Why is this ironic? Why are these things attached that are innocence somehow attached to our us getting the nukes, you know, and introducing nukes into the world? Yeah, good. What do you, what do you think, Aaron? So, sorry, guys, give me just one second. I've just lost the train of thought. That's okay. I can go if you want me to. Yeah, go. I, I have something, a thought, but I, I just, I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to say. Go ahead and then I'll jump in. Okay. okay. So I wrote my, I wrote on the topic of national innocence for my MA thesis. And oh, it's similar, this idea is similar to what we were talking about weeks ago regarding Henry Ford. You know, that Ford's kind of eagerness and sincerity is the actual source of his own self-deception. Um, so similarly, a country that views itself as innocent is ironically more easily persuaded to war, okay? Because it interprets itself more clearly as a victim and its motives are always pure and justified. What I wrote on my thesis was about uh, Bush's language after 9-11, how it was shrouded and it, it was covered in kind of this innocent type of language why would they do this to us this is this was the cry for from everywhere why would they attack this innocent country um and his rhetoric was suited to answer that question they hate us for our freedom right um it was never answered uh with this kind of ironic history of american involvement in the middle east that largely brought a lot of the stuff on. Um, it was, they hate us for our freedom. So many in power kind of helped perpetuate and still perpetuate 9-11 as a myth of complete innocence, an innocent country attacked by an evil aggressor. But if you ask 10 people, did you know that you know Osama bin Laden declared war on the United States twice in the 90s leading up to 2001? Most people wouldn't even know that. And they wouldn't know the reasons why he, he decided to do that, why he declared war on us. And it's because we have militaries all throughout Saudi Arabia, you know, or we have bases all throughout Saudi Arabia. So it's kind of like, you know, if China and it's a, and it's an ideology they hate of, yeah, it's kind of freedom, but it's consumerism and and it's sex and Hollywood and all this type of stuff that they view as uh, as corrupting the Middle East and the, the Muslim world because of our presence there. So it's kind of like if China, you know, put in a military base in Louisville. I'm in Cincinnati, by the way. So like right down the road in Louisville, if they put in a base there, you know, you would feel that kind of ideology coming out of that and you would want them gone. So 9-11 is a very messy global situation. It was evil, but the way we're painting it as if we are innocent really is just a way of kind of readying us for war. Um, and there's a whole bunch of debates about that. But Niebuhr points out this irony by saying, um, at the time, by saying how funny it is that the most innocent nation, one that fled monarchy in Europe to show them how to have a peaceful country uncorrupted by tyrannical control, is the first to usher in the nuclear age. And to, to conclude this point, Niebuhr just says, we slough off many illusions that had been conceived in the days before it was a superpower, quote, otherwise, we will seek to escape from responsibilities which involve unavoidable guilt, or we will be plunged into avoidable guilt by too great confidence in our virtue. 
two to one question and then i want to bring an example for a contemporary issue that i had i was thinking at the time but i, I couldn't recall um a moment ago would you call bush evil then well that gets into um what is bush <laughs> you know the <laughs> bush the machine Typically a shrubbery the administration <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, Bush the administration. Bush ran as a non-nation building uh, president. He ran against nation building. Clinton's. He ran against uh, Clinton in that way. I mean, he didn't run against Clinton, but his rhetoric was formed to oppose Clinton's nation building. Um, he wanted a smaller, you know, presence in the world. Um, but when 9-11 happened, yeah, he's got Wolfowitz and he's got Rumsfeld and he's got and Cheney. And he's got these people surrounding him um, that were more kind of gung ho into uh, spreading the Pax Americana is what they called it. Mm -hmm. And uh, but he also had people, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, who were very apprehensive about that whole ideology. Uh I think Bush was listening to the wrong people and his rhetoric. I do think his rhetoric was misleading. Um, but we've, we've had this conversation before too. If you're going to, if you are going to convince a nation, even for the most righteous war, you have to be somewhat simplistic in your rhetoric uh, to get people to go and fight. But I, I think that this um, I think, I think in my analysis of you know, 9-11 and the speeches that he gave, uh, it was very much framed with this carrying on this myth of American innocence, just kind of posing the way that we remember it. Every, you know, a lot of the war speeches were done in churches, which is interesting. So it was to kind of convey this innocence type of tone um, and this in innocent type of remembrance of kind of what the United States is. Um, instead of dealing with kind of the reality of the situation, uh, which is much more and, and dealing with the reality of the situation, ironically, could have uh, prepared us for a long ideological war, war that was waiting for us uh, in the Middle East, that this isn't just a free nation going up against a bunch of radicals, yeah. uh, but this is there's a whole question about America involvement in the Middle East and blowback that comes from that. Well, I mean, th this, obviously this is an international example, America invading, I mean, let's just do that term invading another country due to this sort of, well, due to the conflict of 9-11, but we can turn it inwardly and focus on certain movements today within particularly white evangelical churches against uh, mm -hmm. CRT. Perfect. Um, racism that, I didn't say any of this stuff. I I'm don't not racist. Yeah, stuff. I'm not racist. I've got a black friend. You know, <laughs> so you know there is this sort of language of innocence as well. But it's interesting what you said a moment ago because you said Bush was just listening to the wrong people. But when we referenced the Trump supporters earlier, who are buying into the the bullcrap of the stolen election stuff they're in the same boat. They're just listening to the wrong people, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. So can we, you know, but with them with like a group of people, I, we can kind of blanket evil. We can say the evil is kind of this force, but then that are we is, just that is now to, prevalent. We just go um, back to the platonic definition. Evil is just ignorance. Mm -hmm. 
Is that what we're just heading to? Yeah, I think no. so. I think it's just kind of what I, I quoted Niebuhr on the Twitter page not too long ago <laughs> saying that um, evil is not so much bad people doing bad things, but good people who do not look inward and do not probe deeply. That's a good point, um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I, I think the Bush was I think the Bush was guilty of that. It's kind of hard to look at these people even ourselves if, if you're being completely honest you see a good person you know it's, it is yeah. really hard and keep in mind all of this i wrote this thesis in 2006 so uh what was it so that's three years after we invade iraq hmm. uh five years removed from 9 11 or four you know so like i was just as guilty at that time I, of course i was an 18 year old um but uh, but it was still a time that a lot of people were pushing for the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and all this type of stuff. I would just add in there that I think part of the problem is not necessarily ignorance, but just I mean, to a degree, but also it, it's a it's a overriding desire to be innocent, regardless of the circumstance. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's an underlying conviction that we have to be innocent as a nation, as an individual. I mean, I, once I read this or once I read American uh, Irony of American History, like the second time. And even the first time I started to hear it in people's conversations about themselves, they're always trying, especially like, cause we live in a very guilt innocence culture. People are very much, uh, they're always trying to make themselves place themselves within their domain within, in, with respect to other people as they want to be re- seen and viewed as innocent. And I think that we do that as for our nation as well. And we do it for our, I mean, it, it's a kind of a problem that you might even see play out in like the SBC right now with uh, the abuse claims. Mm. Like there's a desire to remain innocent or the appearance of innocence at all costs. And it's just innate. It's in everybody. And, and people think like, I mean, I'm not justifying what the SBC did at all. <laughs> and <I don't, coughs> sorry. And I don't know enough about it, but I would, the only thing I would say is it like almost doesn't surprise me in the sense, just because we're so fixated on innocence when you're like, Hey, let's expose something that is deeply problematic about what we've been doing so that we can move on from it that's not where we go we go to be innocent is it any coincidence that kind of the most um uh and this is totally neighborian but the those institutions that have such the most outwardly facing uh portrayal of of purity are oftentimes the most corrupt like uh just purity culture in general and evangelicalism uh i'm sure that at oh my gosh what's not bob jones the other one liberty I'm sure Bob Jones too. I don't know, but th- this this purity culture that exists there is actually there covering up a very a very dark secret, many dark secrets. And we could say the same thing with um, Catholicism and the celibate priests. It obviously has this outward facing, you know, uh, uh, depiction, well, I, uh, portrayal I of that. innocence. And I don't know. I think that might be a myth in the sense that, like, we might think that oh. I just think we don't hear, I mean, plenty of this stuff is going on in the societies and cultures and organizations around us as well. It's just that we, they, they don't claim to be innocent. You know what I mean? They don't, they, all these other organizations don't claim to put themselves on a pedestal. I think it's such a striking scandal when those organizations which are claiming to be innocent aren't. A part of it is that, Zach. A part yeah. of it is that, but listen to the way that Uber is reasoning here. It's, it's very similar to Henry Ford's sincerity, okay? Mm-hmm. Innocence not only covers things up uh, that w- they would otherwise be just like normal, but it is a certain form of self-deception that takes your eye away 
from what's actually going on. So it can actually get worse than it does in a normal society where these things are out in the open. Um, so your will to protect the institution is actually allowing it to get worse. It's, it's allowing it to, does, does that make sense? Um, you're, yeah. you're not willing to put into, into effect. Um, it's kind of like, um, you know, take a university that won't even have like counselors listen to women and their struggles. Let's just say that they make it some kind of policy that no, we don't do that here. We are not a society that checks ourselves because we're already pure type of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. easier to slide into that and let purity and innocence become a mask for actually things getting way out of control because you think you're already fine. Yeah. Self-righteousness. It's just how you're achieving that innocence. It's by achieving it not through repentance, but just through, you know, hiding. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. not really an effective Gun way. culture is another example. Um, right. Your church, I mean, the purity culture of like upholding the this this purity to the point that that any repentance that's necessary is already uh, short circuited and you know pushed out and you know you're already innocent. You know why deal with my problems? You, the, so you are guaranteeing that the issues you do have are never dealt with and they actually get worse. But I think also like. I don't think there's any problem with striving for like a pure life or something like that. I'm just saying that like our response, regardless, especially I think it's a cultural value that we have about innocence. And I think we want to be perceived that way. You know what I mean? It, regardless of the cost. And I think that's the danger. We well, want so to be perceived. I think that's a point Cliff's making. It's not a problem to strive for a pure life, whatever that means, but you have to acknowledge that you're most likely not going to live up to the ideal. Yeah. And once you acknowledge that you're on a better path of realizing the ideal, then if you just sit in your bucket and it, without any self-conscious or self-reflection go, no, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm okay with this. I haven't done anything wrong or. Yeah. It's this slippery slope between, okay. You could take America and our values, for instance, it's a slippery slope. And you actually, we can even talk about this in terms of theology. There's a difference between wanting to be Jesus and acting like you're already Jesus. Yeah. And it's difficult sometimes to differentiate those. So, and the same thing goes with like America. It's okay to want to, it's okay to want to help impoverished countries and defend off tyrants in other places it's okay to want to be kind of a messianic type of figure or, you know, going in and helping these countries out. It's another thing all entirely when you start associating yourself with the Messiah, that you are now that uh, shining, on, uh, shining city on a hill, and it is your duty to go and to help these countries out. Um, then you can start justifying any number of bad things that you are going to do in your pursuit to do what is right. Um, the fact is that we aren't the Messiah, you know, and we have to be uh, very cognizant of that fact or we are not capable of self-correction. Mm -hmm. So all the, so you take purity culture. Uh, there's a difference between saying we've already arrived. We are a pure culture here, you know, and taking kind of the facade for the reality that we are a, we are a pure college. We are a pure church, that, that type of thing. And so any, uh, any mention of impurity has to be thwarted, 
right away. Like we are not that our image of purity becomes more important than pure purity itself. That makes sense. Certainly does. Prosperity. What are your thoughts on this, Aaron? Well, I think we've already covered a bit, but America in particular measures its position with God, with how much, how, how prosper it is. That it almost is seen as a, um, the, the proof positive that we are a, a nation set apart from John Withrop's sort of sermon, right? We, we are this shining beacon on a hill because we are that because of how much money we've made, how much wealthy we are, how prosperous we are as a nation. It's very similar to the other ideas that we've kind of covered. Like it's, we found ourselves in this place where we thought that prosperity would rid us of the ills of life. And then all of a sudden the 1950s come and we find that there's all these new miseries that come with all this newfound wealth and power. I mean, wealth in this case. Yeah, we are, if prosperity is any measure of happiness, America should be the happiest nation on earth, right? Yet look at us, we are miserable, we are anxious, we are paranoid. And there's a lot of truth to this. I mean, you take the richest person uh, in the world, they're gonna have the most security, right? Because they're, they're gonna be, there's more to be anxious about. You know, for for there's more to lose. So Sabella brings up this interesting point where um, we are realizing our uh, our power at the same time that another country is realizing its power that that it has very different values than our own. And so you have this influx of all this power and then all this paranoia all at once, type of thing. Uh, so having you know to quote the great philosopher Christopher Wallace. AKA notorious BIG, mo money, mo problems. <laughs> I love that you said that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Now, divine laughter. Maybe we should wrap on this. Um, there are a lot, there's a lot to discuss after this, like a lot that he, he goes through. He goes through the stroke, um, Niebuhr stroke, how much Ursula helped uh, him out during that, his relationship with Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, which we, I would love for, the, for, for us to read sometime Ursula's um, obituary that she writes on Rabbi uh, Heschel. Um, she talks about them going on for walks and stuff like that. And it's wonderful. The section on Billy Graham, we're going to definitely be covering this fall when we cover um, uh, the elections, we get into the elections and then, uh, John Courtney Murray, we're going to, uh, we're going to save that for another time as well, but let's talk about him wrapping up irony of American history and we'll, and we'll wrap up with this, uh, this part about divine laughter. What did you guys take from this? Um, I mean, it just kind of brings together these ideas, this kind of God point of view in light of the, the, the ironies of humanity that God sees those ironies clearly. Um, well, I yeah. think it's, Part, part of the thing is, is, is with the development of Niebuhr's thought, right? You have in the earlier works his particular view on political problems. And at the beginning of this chapter, Sabella kind of, well, he makes the point that our of American history really brings in all, all his projects into perspective under a God's eye view, right? Yeah. And so divine laughter, irony is almost this sort of outside perspective that helps us understand the inward turmoil we're going through. And so he has a couple really interesting quotes here. 
One is that the more human beings excelled, the more they often denied their limits. So we need something that can step outside of us to bring out repentance, right? Yeah, yeah. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but it's kind of like Don Quixote's mirror um, of being able to see yourself dressed up in all this silly stuff and realize that it's, you know, it's not uh, your, your pretensions about yourself are not necessarily connected with, <laughs> with the greatness that you have. And they're no longer justifications for using that um, in inappropriate ways. But irony from a God perspective confronts us with the reality that both the motives and consequences of our actions are never as pure as we often believe. And we're actually pretty hilarious. And we would be hilarious from God's perspective if it weren't so evil, you know, oftentimes. So Niebuhr exposes this truth from um, the story of Adam and Eve. A lot of times when I teach uh, philosophical anthropology, I'll have students the very first week, I'll have them read Oedipus and then have them re read Adam and Eve, um, the, the story of the garden. And, and, we'll be con and we contrast these two stories. So an Oedipus, Oedipus is a slave to fate. His problems are unavoidable. He is a tragic figure who fails no matter how hard he tries. But Adam and Eve fail ironically. It's their own fault. Trying to be great is somehow attached to their failures, not because their fate is etched in a prophecy of the gods, but because they reach beyond their grasp. They have no one to blame but themselves, and yet they still try to blame someone else. Eve blames the snake, and Adam basically blames God for giving him the woman. But recognizing the ironies of our actions, recognizing the ironies of our pride and our pretensions, city on a hill, innocence, our own power, prosperity, recognizing the ironies of these pretensions exposes that it was all our fault all along. And there is a way of correcting our behavior. Um, I love this quote, Niebuhr quotes Psalm 2, quote, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The people imagine a vain thing love that and i think that, that you know just kind of bring this together i think that this is like a in some ways this is like a pinnacle of um and it's a part of neighbor's work not just here but it's very much like honed in here obviously um and that's like this is like you can definitely see that neighbor has come to this place of pretty tremendous spiritual maturity um and i think he's you know obviously kind of been ahead of the curve probably his whole life but or at least for many years but you know, as a pastor, this is something that I, I strive for people to understand and to be able to view the world this way, to be able to look out into their, their domains and to see those who understand this idea of divine laughter, as opposed to like, they have no, no concept of it, right? This, they have no concept of God's. And I'm not just talking about the grandma who sits there and says, I mean, in some sense, I am talking about the grandma because, you know, as a great example of somebody who's gone through life long enough that they'd be like, you know, God laughs at the attempts of man or whatever, but to truly understand this idea of the kind of nuanced ironies here, this, the, this idea that we're, we're always kind of believing our pretensions are more important than they really are, or believing our own vantage point is more important than it really is. Cause you know, later in the chapter, he goes on to talk about how like, like this is a pivotal, pivotal part of spiritual development, essentially, like to get to this place where you can reflect on your own ironies and to 
strive for justice, strive for good things in the world, but to recognize that, you know, God was not on the side, God was not on the side of the Israelites in every story in the old Testament. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) And that it's a pivotal mistake to believe that God is always behind your judgments. You know what I mean? That's like a pivotal mistake. And it seems like a really simple thing to say, but as a pastor, uh, it's like something you're always trying to teach people. It's like, Hey, like maybe begin to see that it's not quite that easy. Maybe begin to look at this and realize that your pretensions are a little bit or not a little bit, but a lot off the mark. Um, Zach, I think you so nailed it that just boil it. The way that you just boiled this down from a pastor pastoral perspective is huge. Let's not get, let's not get, you know, way down in the weeds here. What this is about is having the ability to laugh at ourselves. And I remember Aaron said something, this is a while back, Aaron, you said something like, you know, the, the old Christians that I used to hang out with in evangelicalism just took themselves way too seriously. Yeah. You know what? And, and I, I think, we, I think I brought up Niebuhr and, um, and Niebuhr says the beginning of, I think he says the beginning of prayer is laughter. And I think it, the, what, what he means by this is the beginning of us, the beginning of us, confronting the most high God has to come with a recognition of our own imbecility and our own idiocy and how little we know about things and how kind of hilarious that is, but how that those hilarious things can oftentimes turn into really bad things. You know, what, what do you think, Aaron? Yeah. I mean, we're called from Niebuhr's perspective. We have to have this sort of God's eye view that we, we don't meet up with the standards and that's kind of funny when we're created in his image. So I don't really have anything more profound, profound that I think Zach really nailed it on the head. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And I was just, I was just going to add in there that, um, I mean, basically want to go out and preach a sermon right now on Psalm two, you know what I mean? Um, and how, I, I think what you said about Aaron just a minute ago, how you guys have talked about this before and we take ourselves way too seriously, you know what I mean? And I think that's a, that's a, a fundamental, problem you know and it's like if i could get anybody to reach a certain stage of spiritual development that would be the stage that you could laugh at yourself and what you think you're going to accomplish you know what i mean and not but also not be overcome by that in doubt and despair and become a cynic yeah just think if 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 christians and even people who are just religious or took their innocence took love as seriously as their innocence now i know the neighbor's whole point is that you can't preach a sermon on love and then everyone the world is going to change it doesn't happen right mm-hmm. if everyone's just loving everything be fine it's not how the world works but if people took their in it took love as, as serious as their innocence then we might have a different be having different conversations about the reality of our world i, I think irony gives you this to, to use a term by Simone Veil, this level of attention um, almost to be attentive to your own incongruities but to the incongruities of others as well, that you've got problems and I've got problems. Yeah. And there's something beautiful in that, right? That's good. Now, before we uh, close, I just want to say that um, June has been our most active month by far since we started this podcast, a whole lot more than I think that we were even um, uh, thinking that we would get a whole lot more listeners than that we even thought was pos- possible probably when we started this. But a lot of people started listening, um, and I just want to say on behalf of all of us here at the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, from the bottom of our heart, thank you. Um, every time I get someone message me on Twitter, and I'm sure the, the other dudes will think this as well, 
um, or every time that somebody engages with the stuff that we post, uh, it means so much to us. Um, we'd do this if there were only 10 of you, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's something we love to do. But the fact that uh, more of you are tuning in, just it just means so much. So thank you all again. It really is a great honor to have your attention and to speak about someone we love on a weekly basis with you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe. Make sure you write us a good review if you haven't yet. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor, at Love Thy Neighbor for all the updates and news. Maybe we'll throw some Neighbor quotes and other goodies out to you uh, to keep you going throughout the week. So thank you all for listening, everybody, and stay safe out there.